Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Open in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5 this morning. If you happen to be our guest, first time with us, we're studying through the biography of Jesus given to us by Mark. We believe it to be Peter's Peter's biography of Jesus that he shared with Mark, and Mark wrote it down. And today we're going to look at Jesus and, uh, and demons. Uh, many people today, even in the church, don't know what to think about demons. Do demons uh, exist? Two kids were leaving Sunday school, and one of them asked, do you believe in the devil? And, uh, and the other boy said, of course not. Of course not. It's like Santa. The devil is your dad. <laughs> many people, many people want to interpret the stories of demons in the Bible in terms of old superstitions, right? Now, let's be honest. There were a lot of old superstitions that were credited to different things that today we no longer believe them to not have a natural cause and, uh, and reason for them. And so people today say, well, demons were how people explain various physical and psychological uh, diseases uh, in days gone by. They actually say there are no demons today. But there can be no doubt, and listen carefully what I'm about to say now, there can be no doubt that the Jesus revealed to us in the Bible, that he actually believed that demons were a real thing. And he addresses them, as Eric said, he addresses them in the story that we're going to look at this morning. So I've decided I'm going to throw my lot in with Jesus, and I'm going to agree with him that demons do exist. Uh, and so from that, uh, from that point of view, we're going to look at uh, the text and see what we can find out about demons. Before we turn our attention to the story, though, if you would allow me a few minutes, I want to talk about the subject of demons from the Bible. And I kind of want to, I want to point out some things that we can read from the Bible. So what we're going to start with, we're actually three aspects about demons. The first one is going to be what are Demons, And to the best of my ability, I'm going to share with you today what everyone agrees with that holds to biblical authority. In other words, if we believe the Bible to be true, here are some things that I think everybody would agree about demons, about these things, okay? So here's the first one. They are spirit beings. And by that I mean they're, they're non-corporal entities. They're not material beings like us. We're material beings, uh, Demons are not. They are creatures without a physical form, and they come from the spiritual realm that is different than the realm in which we live. If you deny the spirit realm, of course, you're going, if you deny, if you think all there is is the material realm and you don't believe there's a spiritual realm, then you wouldn't believe there is any such thing as a demon. But, but we don't deny the spiritual realm. We believe there's a spiritual realm alongside this physical realm in which we live. And, and so, for instance, in Matthew 8, we read the evening, that evening they brought to Jesus many who were possessed with demons, and he cast out the spirits without a word and cured all who were sick. So demons belong to the spirit realm, and their only manifestation seems to be the evil that they cause, the pain that they inflict 
on others. Number two, demons are intelligent, personal beings. It's clear that demons have intellect, and it's clear that they have the attributes of personhood. The word translated demon in your Bibles comes from the Greek word uh, daimon, which its diminutive would be daimonium. And at its root, it means knowledge or knowledge. Uh, intelligence. And some have suggested they're called demons because people thought they were extremely intelligent. Maybe they were more intelligent than us. Here's a verse again from Matthew 8. Same story that we're looking at, different, uh, different biography. Suddenly they shouted, what have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The demons begged him, if you cast us out, send us to the herd of swine. Demons can talk. Demons can think. They make requests, they act in fear, they attempt to persuade. These are all attributes of personhood. And so demons have uh, personhood. They are intelligent, personal beings. Number three, demons are evil, evil, hurtful spirit beings. They cause pain and suffering. And we see that throughout the New Testament. Here's just a few things that they can do to bring about hurtful or, or some of the things they do in their evilness or their evil character. They can take over people and animals and control them. We see that in the story that we're going to be looking at in just a few moments. But we see it out throughout the New Testament that people are often controlled by demons. Here's another one. More than one demon can inhabit and use a single person. Again, that's going to be in the story that we're going to look at this morning. But we also have Mary Magdalene, who the Bible says Jesus cast out seven demons uh, from her. They can inflict mental illness on people. The man in our story is living under mental illness. He lives in the tombs, and he's constantly bruising and cutting himself with stones. Throughout the New Testament, we see demons inflicting all kinds of mental torment on people where they're throwing themselves in fire and such. Here's another one. They can inflict physical infirmities on people. Throughout the New Testament, we see that uh, demons are given credit for all kinds of physical ailments from uh, muteness to deformity to blindness to other ailments that are attributed to them. Moving on, number four, some demons are more wicked than others. The Bible speaks of degrees of wickedness among the demons. Jesus shares a story one time about a man who's been freed from a demon, and he says that demon goes out over the waterless regions looking for a resting place when it finds none. It says, I'll return to the house from which I came. When it comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order, then goes and brings along seven more spirits more evil than itself. And and so the Bible speaks of there being degrees of evilness amongst uh, demonic spiritual beings. Number five, they're numerous. Uh, In fact, in the story we're going to look at, they call themselves legion, speaking of uh, their numbers. But we see throughout the New Testament that demons are often seen harassing people and afflicting folks. So they are numerous. And number six, their spirit being submitted to Satan. Satan is the head or the Lord over the demons we find in the New Testament. He seems to rule over them. The fact that they are numerous means that they're able to afflict much damage around all of the world, it seems. So summing all of what I just set up, demons are spirit beings that are personal, intelligent, and they act with evil malevolence. There are many of them, and they serve the evil work of of Satan everywhere in the earth. Number two thing that I'd like to share with you about demons is I'd like to talk about where do they come from. You know, where do they come from? We just talk about what they are. 
well, where did they come from? How did they get here? I asked somebody that this question this morning, and they go, well, God created them. And, and I, I say, yeah, man, everything that is has been created by God, but did God create them that way to, to, to harass people and evil spirit? Did God make them like that? And of course, the answer is we don't think so. So where did they come from? How did they get to be who they are? Now, some people are going to tell you that they know exactly where demons come from, but that's not true. Every one of us is at least at some degree speculating an answer from what we read in the New Testament. And so Bible scholars have put forth four theories, and I call them theories, right, as to where demons came from. And some of these, are, some of these theories are actually supported by extra canonical books like the book of Enoch. And so some people would say the book of Enoch seems to answer this question as well. But I, I want to just, I want to give you the theories and I'm going to just talk about them biblically for a moment. Here's the first theory as to where demons came from. Demons are the disembodied spirits of a pre-Adamic race of, of I guess, humanoid people. If, uh, if you've any kind of age and been following Jesus for a while, if you've done any kind of study in theology, you will be familiar with what people call the gap theory. J. Vernon McGee, for instance, that many of us listen to in our youth, right? Uh, he's long gone now, but J. Vernon McGee was a Bible teacher. He, he held to the gap theory. The gap theory is that between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, there's a gap. In other words, it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And verse 2 says, and the earth was void and formless and there was water all over it. And so J. Vernon McGee and many others have postulated, and, and some say this is an attempt to reconcile what science seems to tell us about the age of the earth. We all recognize that it has age. And they've tried to say, well, this is how we can reconcile the two. There's a, <clears throat> a gap between the creation of all things and the recreation of all things, which begins in Genesis 1-2. And so folks say, well, there was obviously a race of people prior to Genesis 1-2, and so demons are the disembodied spirits of that race uh, of people. We don't know what happened in that period, but they're the disembodied spirits of, of that race of people. They would point to verses like Matthew 12, 43, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it wanders through waterless regions looking for a resting place, but it finds none. Now, how in the world that points to a pre-edemic race, I don't know, but that's a verse that they would point to. Um, my problem with this is that there's just absolutely no biblical evidence for this. There's really no evidence for a gap theory between one and two in the first place, right? Um, we may find out they're right, but there's no evidence of that. And there's definitely no, no, no evidence of this in the Bible whatsoever that there's a pre-Adamic race. So I, I kind of dismissed that one. And these are the four major ones that Christians hold to. I'm talking about people who believe the Bible. Here's a second one. Demons are the spirits of especially evil dead people. So some people believe that the, the demons are really just the disembodied spirits of the particularly evil folks throughout the ages, and they're wandering in the realm of the dead, seeking bodies to inhabit again. Again, there's just absolutely no biblical support for this. It's just a mere speculation. Now, the last two, um, there is more biblical support for these last two. And in fact, this third one, demons are the spirits of the offspring of angels and earthly women. I'm going to say that again in case... You couldn't believe what you just heard. Demons are the spirits of the offspring of angels and earthly 
women. And believe it or not, this is gaining in popularity among many biblical scholars. I actually think the book of Enoch speaks uh, to this in favor of this view. And this view goes back to Genesis 6 where it says the sons of God left their place and they came and cohabited with the sons of, I mean the daughters of women and they bore an offspring and their offspring is the Nephilim and the Nephilim in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to go into great details, but that's the giants that we read about in the, in the Old Testament. And so people say that the Nephilim are the offspring of angels and of people. And when those, those Nephilim, those giants, that offspring died, then demons are really the offspring, the, the, the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. And like I said, many, this is growing in its popularity among Bible-believing Christians. And in fact, a lot of men that I respect greatly would probably hold to this position. Now, I'm going to tell you my struggles with this position are, and some of you in this room would not agree with me, but, but I, my struggles with this is that God, doesn't even, God does not even let a dog and a cat breed Right, we don't we don't get dogs and cats breeding and having a uh, a cog or a dat. So why should we? I'm glad some of you got that. Um, so why should we believe that God would allow a non-corporal spirit to somehow mate with a corporal being? I I, I struggle with that concept, and I know many. Even if you don't believe that demons are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, right? Some of you would hold to the fact that you believe Genesis six is saying that angels left their abode and they cohabited with women and they had children from that relationship. I just, I just can't, I just can't seem to go there. It just doesn't seem to fit uh, to me. But that's a third view, and it's a, growing, it's a growing view of who the demons are, what demons are. The fourth view is the traditional view. It's probably the more accepted view. It's probably the view that many of you, if I'd asked you just off the cuff, where do demons come from, this is what you would have told me. And that is that they're the, the angels, the, the spirit angels, messengers of God in the, in the creation that rebelled against God uh, in the fall of Satan. And so when they rebelled against God, these angels became what we consider to be demons today. The biblical evidence that people would point to would be the book of Revelation where it talks about the dragon with his tail. You remember the dragon and the woman on the, on the I think she's standing on the sun and the dragon's tail knocks the third of the stars out of the sky. Well, of course, none of that's literal. It's meant to say some truth. And some folks believe that that is pointing to, the dragon is no doubt to be Satan, right? So the dragon with his tail sweeping a third of the stars out of the sky, folks say, well, that's God telling us that Satan took a third of the angels with him when he rebelled against God. And, and I, mean, I can see some plausibility to that understanding. The Pharisees saw Satan as the Lord of the demons, which again would point uh, to that. So, so here, let me sum all that up. So scripture makes it really clear, demons do exist, everyone. I mean, either, you'd, either I, I don't understand how you can affirm that Jesus is the son of God and then deny what he affirmed, right? Yet progressive, progressive Christianity is doing that all the time. I, I just want us to affirm that demons do exist, okay? But where they explicitly come from, 
I mean, we're not told that. And so, you know, we have to do our best to understand the scripture and, and, and come out thinking, but not that it really matters, okay? They do exist. Where they came from exactly, we're, we're not 100% sure. But those are four theories that people have put forth. And the third thing that I want to talk about with demons themselves is I want to talk about just how powerful are demons, all right? Um, they're numerous, and they can hurt us, but here's one thing I'd like to say just as an overarching title to this little section would be that their power and their reach is limited. And in prayer time this morning, uh, Billy Rickman gave me a, 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 just a word picture or a metaphor that was so good. He said, demons are junkyard dogs. They're on a chain and they sound terrible, but they can only go so far. I thought that was a great illustration. Demons are powerful, but their power and their reach is, is limited. So Here's a couple things about, here's some things about their power, right? They're not everywhere present. By that, they're, they're not omnipresent. Satan isn't even omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent, meaning he's present everywhere, always, in every moment. Demons are not everywhere. The reason we know that is we just see it throughout the New Testament. They're either in the men or they're in the pigs, one or the other, right? They're not, um, they're not present everywhere. They are powerful, but they don't seem to have the power to do the supernatural. And uh, I may be proven wrong on that. You may be able to show me an instance where a demon does something supernatural. But I, I don't really see where demons are doing the supernatural by, by their own authority or power. The third thing I would say there, knowledge is limited. I told you that the word demon comes from the Greek word from which we get intellect or, or knowledge. And, but their knowledge and their understanding and their minds are limited. They, they cannot read minds. At least that's, that's what I think most, uh, most believers deduce from the scripture. They do not read minds. Uh, they do not know everything that's going to happen in the future. Therefore, uh, we need to be careful not to attribute to them more, more, if you would, power than we ought to. Here are a few things they do know that we, know, we read in the scripture. They know there's only one God, right? James tells us, you say there's only one God and you think you do well. You believe in God, you do well. The demons believe in God and they also tremble, which is more than you do is, is James's implication there. So they, knew, they know there's only one God. They, uh, they know the identity of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, we read uh, where the demon, I think it was the, I can't remember what the demon was doing to the, to the person in that story, but in Mark 1, it, the demon says, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Are you come to destroy us? I know you, who you are, the Holy One of God. So demons knew the identity of Jesus. They knew their own eventual fate. And behold, they cried out saying, what have we to do with you, son of God? Are you come here to torment us before the time? So it seems like demons, just like all of us. I think this is true. Although well, we may try to deny I think all of us know there's coming a day of judgment, right? I think we all know that innately in our hearts. I don't know, some people would vehemently deny that they believe there's a judgment coming. But I think deep down in all of us, we know there's a day of standing before our creator. The demons know it too. And the last thing that we know they know is they knew who genuine believers were. This is a really kind of cute, funny story in the book of Acts where these guys try to cast out demons and the evil spirits answered and said to them, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, but who are, who are you, right? And uh, so demons obviously could know who a genuine believer was and, and who wasn't. So 
My thought is that if they knew those things then, they still know those things today. Here's something else about the power. And this is probably, if you want to, if you want to take, if you only want to remember one thing, only remember this. Demons are always and always are, always have been under God's, under God's power and under the power of his Messiah. They are under him. They have no control outside of him. They must submit to his authority. When Jesus commanded them, they obeyed Jesus always. And, and, and even Jesus, when he delegated his power, he delegated it to his disciples and they had power over the demons as well. So Jesus sent out 70 of his disciples. When they came back, it says the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven. Uh, like like lightning. So demons and all of creation is subject to God's power and whatever limitations that he's going to set on them. So let's turn our attention to the story. Open back up to Mark 5 if you haven't, just so you can follow along. I'm going to begin to read. I'm going to make a few comments on the story, and then I've got four applications for us to take home, and hopefully they'll challenge you and be an encouragement to all of us. So chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, that would be Jesus, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. And he lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. I've tried really hard not to bring the other biographical material from the other Gospels in, into our stories. I've tried to just take Mark and flesh and, and use what he says. But this time I want to flesh it out a little bit more. And I want to bring in some of Matthew's and Luke's accounts here. Uh, because I think we just need to add to it just a little bit. First of all, Matthew tells us there were two men. I think it's important that I talk about this for a moment because some of you young people might go off to college and if we don't talk about it, I guarantee you unbelievers are going to talk about it and they're going to want to, they're going to try to make you trip up in your faith. Matthew mentions two, but Mark and, and Luke only mention one man possessed of demons. If you don't believe me, you can look it up. So why the difference there? And so most, most folks harmonize that by saying there was obviously two men that were demonically possessed, but there's one of them who's possessed by demons who call themselves legion. And he is the more vocal of the two. He's the more pronounced of the two. And so Mark and Luke are, are focusing on him. I, I, I would concur with that harmonization of the Gospels. But if we, if, we, if we flesh out with Mark and Matthew and Luke, here's some things we learn. Luke tells us that he'd been possessed a long time. Luke also tells us that he wore no clothes and he lived like an animal. So we kind of already gathered that from what we read in Mark, but he was naked. Well, were they both naked or just this dude? I don't know, but he's naked, living amongst the, uh, the tombs. He basically lived like an animal. He was extremely strong. Um, he was mentally tormented, cutting himself, beating himself with stones. He was a tortured man for sure. When, he, when Jesus arrives on the the shore, let's say, evidently assuming near the, the, the cemetery or whatever, this guy comes out to meet Jesus. Verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me, for he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. 
Seems like almost immediately the man, the, the demons are compelled to come to Jesus. They bring the man to Jesus. Immediately Jesus starts telling these spirits to come out and they speak back. And again, here's that whole thing about they know the identity of Jesus. What do we have to do with you with Jesus, son of the most high God? They obviously knew him. And again, their personhood, they began to, to implore him, don't torture us. And of course, he's telling them to come to come out. Don't you find it interesting that the, the man with the demons immediately comes and kneels before Jesus? Even the spiritual evil beings, they recognize Jesus for who he is and they bow before him. Verse 9, what is your name? Jesus asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. A Roman legion consisted of 6,000 men. I, I don't think the demon's trying to tell us that there were 6,000 demons uh, in this man. I think he just simply is using legion as the name that he gave himself because there were so many of them. We don't know, and there's no precise number. I mean, if you think 6,000, that's fine. I'm just telling you I don't. I imagine the point of the demon was that he was trying to make is that there are many of us, and we are organized and unified but they're begging Jesus not to send them out of the region. Now, this is Jimmy's speculation, okay? I mean, uh, th this is what we do when we study Scripture. Because we're 2,000 years removed, because we're 2,000 years removed, when I come near this, am I, am I on this? Uh, excuse me. Am I on this or am I on my microphone, Abigail? Turn this one off if, if we're not on it. So um, this is my speculation. Second Peter in 2 Peter, we find Peter talking about how God judged angels and is holding them captive in Tartarus until the day of judgment, right? And, uh, and, it's in, and Peter also tells us angels who did not hold their place. So, you know, why does God hold some angels captive until judgment while others are free, like Satan? Why, why, why would that be so? And again, I can only speculate it. My speculation would be that there were some angels that were so evil, God is, God is restraining them for our sake. That would, that would be my speculation, okay? But I'm also speculating when they say, please don't send us out of the region, I think they're saying, please don't send us to the abyss. Please don't send us to Tartarus. Please don't send us to that place where others are being held captive, Again, that's what they meant. Maybe they just meant, please don't you know, send us over to the other side of Galilee, right? To the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Maybe that's what they were saying. Everybody follow what I just said? Okay. Verse 11, a large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. And the demons begged Jesus, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd of 2,000 of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned. So seeing some pigs off in a distance, the demon said to Jesus, don't send us out of the region, send us in to those pigs. And Jesus agrees and lets them go to the pigs. He says, okay, go to the pigs. And so they go to the pigs and immediately they kill the pigs by drowning them. So I'm speculating here, uh, allow me to do that. Have you ever wondered why did they go into pigs and then drown the pigs? 
All right, no, it doesn't tell us. So I'm going to speculate. I think they did that because in drowning the pigs, they would be free of the pigs and free to go wherever they wanted. That's what I think. And I don't know that for sure. So if that is the case, did Legion pull a fast one on Jesus? <laughs> oh, hey, let us go to the pigs. But really, as soon as he sends us to the pigs, we're going to drown them and then we'll be free to do whatever we want. No, you know. Even though I do believe in, uh, in the kenosis of Jesus and that I don't believe his omniscience was something that he operated in, I, I don't believe they pulled a fast one over on Jesus. I do believe, and this is again my speculation, I believe Jesus is testing the hearts of the people of the community. So as, let's, just, let's just say for a moment that Jesus reckoned what they were going to do. Maybe the Spirit told them what they were going to do. You know, he was, I think, maybe, and by the way, listen, just because I said last week that I don't believe that God is the micromanager of everything that happens, meaning that God is the cause, the specific and direct cause of every storm and everything that happens in our life, just because I believe that to be true, doesn't mean that I, I don't believe that God can use and does use every single thing that happens in his universe. And so I believe he can use this. And I, and I think Jesus is, this is, again, I guess this is what, the, what a pastor teacher does. He's just trying to help, you know, interpret this. But you need to listen to the Spirit. I think Jesus is testing the people of the community. What will you care more about? Will you care more about two men that have been held captive their, maybe their entire lives? Or will you care more about pigs? Maybe it's a test for them. Verse 14. The men who tended them ran off and reported to the town and the countryside and people went to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon possessed sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon possessed man and told about the pigs. And then they began to beg Jesus to leave their region. I've often wondered also, why were they afraid? You ever thought that? I mean, when you read this story, you ever wondered why? Why are they afraid seeing the guy sitting there? Are they afraid because Jesus has the power over demons? Or are they afraid because they recognize maybe this guy's God and so they're afraid of that? Or, or maybe they're, you know, are they afraid that if Jesus, I mean, this guy's going to, you know, he's going to come back with demons and be worse off than he was before? I, I don't know why they're afraid. I don't even, I don't even want to speculate an answer. They're afraid, though. And they don't want Jesus there anymore. And, uh, and, this, is, and this is kind of something that uh, I think is... Well, let me, let me go and read the next part. 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. And Jesus did not let him, but told him, Go home to your people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has been merciful or mercy has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. So Jesus leaves. He doesn't stay. Remember, he's just come over there, and he gets right back in his boat, and he leaves. Why? Because Jesus will not stay where he's not welcome. I mean, he told his disciples, when you go into the cities of Israel or the towns of Israel, and you come into a town and they don't receive you, what are they to do? Shake the dust off your feet and just go on to the next town. So Jesus is just practicing what he's told them to do, right? If people don't want you there, then just get back in the boat and move on. That's exactly what he does. But this man, this man who's been set free from a legion of demons, I mean, he, 
He doesn't want to leave Jesus' side. I think it's touching. He goes and he says, please, please let me be one of your disciples. Please let me be one of those who follow you. And Jesus says, no. I think if I met him, I'd be really, I think I would have started crying. But he, Jesus says, no. But it's not just a no, I don't want you. No, it's listen, man, go home and go to Decapolis. Decapolis literally means 10 cities. It was 10 Greek cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, including Damascus. It was Gentile territory, Gentile community. And Jesus commands this man to go home and to tell everybody what God had done for him. Now, isn't that different than what you find in Israel? Remember in Israel, what does Jesus tell everybody that he heals? Don't tell anybody. Please keep it to yourself. You know, why, why the difference here? Well, the difference is because I, I've told you before, I believe that in Israel, Jesus is working God's plan that's going to take him to the cross. And part of that meant not rallying everybody up prematurely. So I think that's why. But here when it came to the gent, this is Gentile territory. Jesus is telling a Gentile man, go home and tell everybody what God has done for you. And this man did. He went in and told everybody what Jesus was doing. And I couldn't help but think as I, as I was preparing this week that, Jesus, that this man is putting the light up on the, on the stand. Remember a couple of weeks ago about the parables of the light and Jesus said, everybody takes a light. Nobody puts it under a bushel. Even though that's what I'm doing right now, that's not where it's going to end up. It's going to go up high for everybody to see. And I think Jesus is, is telling this Gentile, man, it's time you take the light out to the Gentiles. Because the light of the Gentiles is about to be bright when I am risen from the dead. So that's the story. Let me, let me draw four applications from the story for us. Here's the first application. I guess this would be the part that I want you to walk out of the door this morning and say, okay, this is what I want to do with this story that we've heard this morning. Okay, here's the first thing I want you to do. Let's not deny the existence of demons. Progressive Christians, liberal Christians, others may deny that, that demons exist, but let's not that be us. All right? I don't know if that was good English, what I just said. <laughs> let's not let that be us. C.S. Lewis, in the beginning or in his uh, preface to Screwtape Letters, which is, by the way, these demons and how they work from, from C.S. Lewis's point of view. But this is what he writes. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, we humans, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, that would be the demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So I want to encourage us this morning to not disbelieve in the existence and in the power uh, of demons. Don't chalk up the demons of the New Testament or Old Testament. Don't chalk them up to superstitions of a generation gone by. And the reason I say this is because Jesus didn't. And so you don't either. So I think we can be honest and say there's a lot of things that we recognize today that, that are not due necessarily to a demonic person or demonic spirit causing them. But that... Uh, but that would not be necessarily true of everything. So why is it that we don't see as much demonic in our world? You ever thought about that? Why? I mean, let's be honest. We seem to see demons and demonic work all throughout the lives of New Testament believers, right? Why don't we see that as much today? Well, some have suggested that Satan and demons have gone underground. In Jesus' day, 
People almost universally believed in God and demons, so there was no advantage in hiding their existence or their word. But in our day, in the advent of the scientific method and medical discoveries, you know, the pendulum has been swinging, and so the naturalist or the materialist today who denies God says that there is a natural cause for everything, right? So there is no spirit realm. There is no spiritual beings. So there's a natural cause for everything. So if Satan wants to push people in that direction, then it would seem to me that intelligent creatures like demons and Satan, it's to their benefit, I think, to hide the work of demons and not make it be so open. And after all, haven't we learned the advantage of covert and clandestine warfare? And so that's... I think that's a plausible answer as to why the demonic in our Western world is not uh, as evident maybe as it appears to be in the New Testament. I will say this, not having experienced it necessarily, but from our, our missionaries and people who go to the rest of the world where it's not Western civ, they all say that openly demonic work is, is evident and clearly evident in those worlds in which they live. So... Take that for what it be. So, but again, here's my application. Let's not make the mistake of denying the existence and the work of demons. Here's my second uh, application. Let's not obsess over demons and see demons behind every bush. Not that I see that happening in the realms that I live in, right? I, I don't see that happening. But I think we need to be careful not to attribute every hardship, every storm, every bad thing that happens to me or to someone else, to the work of Satan or demons. I tell you, listen, a lot of the bad things that happen to you, it's because you've made bad choices and you've done bad things. And that's the reason you're reaping the consequences of the actions that you've made. And you can blame Satan all you want. You can blame a demon all you want. But a lot of times it's you're, you're the reason for the suffering that you're in. Not all suffering comes to us from a demon. So uh, many sufferings and sorrows, I think, necessarily don't have demonic behind them. They're because we live in a broken world. Now, don't hear me saying that everything happens to us because we live in a broken world. I don't believe that either. That's application number one, right? This is application number two. Don't be seeing everything as related to uh, the demonic. When the disciples got back from that 70 uh, guys out you know, preaching the gospel. When they get back and, and Jesus tells them, I saw Satan falling from heaven. When they say, hey, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Do you remember what comes after that? Jesus says to them, he says, don't rejoice that the devils have been submitted to you. Rejoice rather that your name is is." written in my kingdom. I'm paraphrasing. Well, I'm going to make my paraphrase even more. Here's what I think he's saying. Let your focus be the kingdom, not demon hunting. That's what I think his focus is. That's what I think he's saying by that. Be thankful that you're part of the kingdom. That's really what matters. I've shared this with you many, many times. Robertson McQuilkin, the president of the seminary where I went, and he was, he was still the president when I was there, and he's long gone now. But Robertson McQuilkin used to say, we need to live in the center of Biblical tension, right? And the tension is that we don't deny the existence of demons, but we also don't obsess over them. I love Dick's, I always have to throw in Dick's metaphor. Dick's metaphor is that we fly with two wings of truth. It's saying the same thing. You can't fly with one wing. You have to fly with two wings. And it's the same point. 
So don't deny demons, but also don't focus on them. Don't, don't fear them, which leads me to my third application. We don't need to be afraid of demons. And we need to remember, I want you to remember, I want you to walk out the doors remembering this, that demons are subject to Jesus. And um, now, again, let's, let's be frank. If you're confronted by a man who's possessed by a legion of demons, and he's naked, and he's bleeding from his cuts, and nobody can chain him, your natural gut response is going to be fear, right? It's going to be fear. Can't doubt it, right? It's an emotion. We can't stop it. So, but what we need to remember is that demons are subject to Jesus. And so we don't need to let any of that fear paralyze us or rob us of peace and joy, which I'm going to address in just a moment. What do we do when we're confronting uh, some demon? But, um, but right now, I just want you to not be afraid. Remember, demons must subject, it, subject themselves to Jesus. They're under his power. They're the junkyard dog on a chain. They can only go as far as, as God would ever allow them to go. So, you know, how is it that we're not afraid of demons? How do not be afraid of demons? Here's what I'd say to you. I'd say, um, hide yourself in Jesus. Submit yourself to Jesus. You know, if you're submitted and hidden in Jesus, you're not going to be afraid. I, I had this remembrance. I remember when my kids were little, you know, they're like two and three years old, and I went to introduce them to you. Remember this? And what did they always do? Well, they're always afraid, and so they'll hide themselves behind my legs, right? They'll wrap themselves around my leg, and they'll hide themselves behind. Your kids do that when I try to talk to them too, right? Because they're afraid of me. Not sure why, but they're afraid of me. And so they hide behind your legs and they hide. So what I'm saying to you is hide yourself in Jesus. This is how we're not, we don't need to be afraid of demons. How do we not be afraid of demons? Even if we're confronted by the scariest of them or or a man or woman possessed by the scariest of them, how do we not be afraid? Hide yourself in Jesus. Uh, J.D. Greer had this statement, which I thought was so good. If you want to fight the demonic, don't focus on the demons at all. Just let Jesus be large in, in your life. Although that was a great quote. Okay. So how not to be afraid? Call on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Not on the demon or maybe even the torment that you might be experiencing that maybe, maybe is coming to you at the hand of a demon. Focus on Jesus, not on the demon. That brings me to my last application, then we're done. So here's my last application. Fight against demons biblically. Fight against them biblically. And you might, you might think, I, I would be against battling the demonic. I, I'm not at all. In, in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul said that we do spiritual warfare, right? We do spiritual warfare. And how does he say we do that? He says you put on the armor of God. So let me read you the passage. I know sometimes it's hard to listen and not let your mind wander because this is about seven or eight verses, but just try to listen as best you can. Here's Paul. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having prepared everything to take your stand, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with the readiness of the gospel of peace. 
In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the spirit with with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Here's how we fight. It's pretty simple. You put on the helmet of salvation. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about our our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with God through Jesus. Put it on. Trust in Jesus. And then he says, our breastplate is the righteousness of Jesus. When we put on the helmet of salvation, the righteousness of Jesus becomes ours. And it becomes this breastplate that protects uh, our chest area. You know, we were driving yesterday and I pointed out to Ann that just about every cop I now see, every police officer, he's wearing a vest. Doesn't matter when it is, where it is, he's wearing a vest to protect his chest, right? We, we put on the righteousness of Jesus to protect us. We put our, our sandals in this armor is the preaching of the good news. That's the sandals we put on. Our shield is our faith. Again, we don't fight with this kind of armor anymore. But you remember, have you seen the Roman wars and all that? You know, the shield was to, when the guy would hit me with a sword, I'd put up my shield to, to deflect his, his sword. He says, our faith is our shield. And then he adds this, Paul says, that that's how we extinguish the fiery darts of the devil or of demons. So this morning, uh, again, it was Billy, Billy Rickman says, you know, what, what do I do with the darts, the thoughts that cross my mind? Are those demonic thoughts that cross my mind? All of a sudden, I think something evil or something terrible. Is that a demonic thought? Well, I think it can come from your old nature, but I also think it, I mean, according to this, it can be a fiery dart of, of, of a demon, right? How do you extinguish those thoughts? Through our faith. We pull up our faith. We remind ourselves of our faith in the Lord Jesus. I mean, sometimes we're just, we we get so captured by the enemy that we forget our faith. But we're supposed to pull up our faith and extinguish those thoughts that are wrong thinking. Now, all of that, all those parts of our weapon are somewhat defensive, right? But look at the last two. There's two offensive This is how we do war against the devil, against demons, right? There's two weapons there. The first one is what? You tell me. What is it? Sword of the Spirit. Thank you, Jim. It is the sword of the Spirit. What is the sword of the Spirit? It's the Word of God, right? So he says our weapons are offensive weapons. The first one is the sword of the Word of God. And we see Jesus fought the devil himself. Jesus fought Satan himself with that weapon, did he not? Every time Satan said something to him, Jesus said, hey, but the word of God says, and he pulled out the sword of the spirit and he used it against, uh, against Satan, right? So we need to fight with the word of God. Now, here's one thing about, about weapons. You've got to know how to use them. Remember David against Goliath? When Saul says, oh, this is awesome. You're going out for me. Here, take my, take my armament. And he put on the shield and the helmet. And I have a picture of his helmet coming over David's eyes, right? David can't see. He says, man, I can't use this stuff. And he takes it off because it's not tested. I don't know how to use it. Some of you know that I took my dad's bow to get it fixed so I could bow hunt this year. I found out yesterday they, they lost my bow in the back and they never worked on it. So I missed bow season. You know, I didn't get to hunt with it. But uh, Dick Lane told me I wouldn't get anything anyway. <laughs> He later apologized, but I'm sure he's right, right? I'm sure he's right. But I just got to tell you, so when we got the bow back last night, I have four arrows, 
And uh, so I went in my backyard to practice against my dad's rubber deer that's standing up against the tree. I got 25 yards back and I shot and off into the woods went my arrow. (laughs) And uh, so uh, he was in my yard, off into the woods, went, well, actually just on the edge. But anyway, I shot four times and I think it was the third one, I heard the thump, right? And I knew I had gotten him, so when I went and looked, I I got about an inch off the bottom of his hoof, right, or whatever. (laughs) I got him in the leg. And um, the next time, I think I I got one arrow in his heart. But you know by the third and fourth time, I was putting three arrows in that sucker. I mean, it's just a rubber deer. But anyway, I I got three. And I know he's not real. And all you hunters are saying, yeah, Jimmy, but you'd never hit a real thing. And I'm sure you're right, right? But my point in telling you that was the more I used my bow, the better I got at it. And the better I got at it. And here's my point. If we're going to fight the spiritual fight, if we're going to fight with the armor of the word of God, the sword of the spirit, you've got, you've got to use, you've got to practice with it. And what I mean by that is you've got to know the word of God. You've got to read it. You've got to study it. You've got to, you've got to learn it so that you know how to use it when the fiery darts or, or when, you know, there's just lots of times you need to pull up the word of God. And again, I mean, it's, the word of God is not a silver bullet in the sense that, you know, it's going to keep us from all sin. But David said, I, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Right? So there is a sense in which we need to know the word of God, study it, memorize it, use it. And the second weapon, what's the second weapon listed there? The second offensive weapon? Prayer. Praying in the spirit at all times, he says, Pray, praying for our brethren, praying. We fight the demonic through our prayers. We suppress and neuter the enemy through our prayers, which is why, and again, I'm not trying to manipulate you, but it's why I long for Sunday mornings at eight o'clock for there to be more than four or five of us praying. Because this is how we do warfare. This is how we fight the enemy. This is, this is how we fight. We fight through prayers. We suppress him through prayers. I'm telling you this morning, coming off of this sermon, this morning in our prayer time, I told everybody, listen, we're going to do spiritual warfare this morning. We're going to fight against the enemy. And that's what we sought to do. Charles Spurgeon said, the preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. I should have had that quote up on the last one with the word of God, right? But prayer, prayer is how we defeat the enemy. Come, come, let's do spiritual warfare as a church and let's pray. I mean, I I don't know if it's true or not. I'm assuming it is, but they say of of Spurgeon's church, which was, they might remember the name, it was a Baptist church in London. But when they asked Spurgeon sometime, where's the power of this church? He took them to this little room somewhere in the back where a bunch of people would be praying during the gathering. I mean, I'm not talking about eight o'clock. I'm talking about during the gathering. They'd be praying there for God to move. We, we need to somehow, you personally, we're, we're in such an individualistic society, so you pray. But if you ever feel like praying with the church, come join us. Let's pray. Let's do spiritual warfare through prayer. How do we get the devil out of our homes? How do we get him out of our church? How do we get him out of our country, out of our lives? Well, we preach the word of God. We know and learn and love and proclaim the word of God. And we pray in the spirit. We focus on the one who has the power to defeat the enemy. And it's not you and me. 
It's Jesus. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.